Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Robert Seda Schreiber. Robert is Chief Activist of the Bayard Reston Center for Social Justice in New Jersey named for the civil rights leader who was the primary architect of a 1963 march on Washington. This community activist center is an educational enclave and a safe place for all people. Robert established a center with the explicit consent of Bayard Rustin's partner, Walter Nagel, with a strong desire to ensure every individual, whether it be in a school, in a workplace or in everyday life, feel safe, protected, and loved. In June 2017, he was recognized as the National Education Association's Social Justice Activist of the Year. As an art teacher in the Krebs Middle School in East Windsor, New Jersey, Robert ran that school's Gay Straight Alliance. Robert believes it's important for students to have allies in the classroom if they are LGBTQ because the very existence of gay-straight alliances saves lives every day, both literally and figuratively. In 2014, he received the New Jersey Education Association's Equality Champion Award which honors members who have been champions in defense of human and civil rights. As chief activist of the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice, Robert has moved forward with his experience, knowledge, and passion to bring his service to a greater platform to serve and defend the LGBTQ community. His passion is in part driven by memories of a beloved uncle who was gay, but couldn't come out because his father wouldn't have understood. And as an adolescent, seeing these issues of identity, especially for youth, being shrouded in secrecy and instilling a sense of shame and wrongness on his peers. Before teaching, he founded and ran the Creatures of Awareness Theater Company a nonprofit community theater group which raised over $10,000 for AIDS foundation and support groups. He is a published and internationally recognized visual artist. Robert first marched on DC while in his mother's womb and has been marching the path for justice and equality each and every day of his life. Robert, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I am delightful, and I am thrilled and honored and just uh, tickled pink to be with you this morning. Well, me too. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, I, you know, I think that one of the first things that I, that in reading your your bio, and that I, I'd like some information about, you said that you first marched in on DC while in your mother's womb, and that you were named for not only Robert Kennedy but a king. Can you talk a little bit about that? Who and did you know that? When did your mother tell you that? And did she say, you know, you were named after this and you did that? We have great expectations. You know, that's the amazing part about my folks. And um, it's wonderful we're talking about them because my dad's just about to be 80 years old. Um, and they both um, have served as inspiration to me my entire life. Um, and they've done so by not actually explicitly saying, this is what you should do, or this is who you're named for, or this is what we expect. It was just in my house each and every day, and I'm incredibly lucky. And uh, honestly, this is easy for me. I, I, you know, this is what I had in my house. Everybody was equal. Everybody deserved respect and kindness. And indeed, I was named for Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King, and that's a huge mantle and a huge responsibility. But it's one that I cherish. And honestly, I, almost each and every day, I, I think back on that. I think back on what others have done and how others have been of service, and that just motivates me, inspires me to do the little bit that I can. Um, mm. So, you know, so I did. I, I mean, honestly and truly, in the embryo, marched on Washington, and then that was the start of my path. And I've been mm. lucky ever since that my folks in the house, we would just talk and share and be open and the experiences that I had and that they had would always be something that, that um, allowed us to grow together. And then an extraordinary thing happened to me that I met my lovely bride, Cindy, who is a public defender um, mm. and who inspired me even further. So I started in this path with my parents and then my wife held my hand as we traveled it. And the amazing things happened that we, my wife and I, marched on Washington for LGBTQIA rights with my son in her womb. Mm. And it's just, it's just this great parallel, this great journey, this great wonderful thing. And now my son is 18, and he's about to go wow. to college, and he's a musician. And through his music, he is doing incredible things. Um, and he and his band, they're the house band for the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice. So it's just an amazing, amazing thing. And um, I just am inspired each and every day by my family, by my friends, by my allies, and by folks like you who hear our message, who see what we're doing, and allow us to continue doing it. Now, although you're uh, a recognized visual artist, most of your life you've been a teacher. What made you, I mean, when you went into teaching, what made you decide to, that that was where you were going to put the most of your efforts? And how did you combine the arts with teaching? Well, again, that was just something that um, was an opportunity that couldn't be passed. I was actually all the way across the country. I was in uh, California. I was teaching at UC Berkeley. Um, and having a wonderful time. I mean, I was living right off the beach. It was 70, 80 degrees every day of the year. I was making quite a nice bit of money and just wonderful, wonderful times. And I got a phone call from my old middle school, the middle school I went to as a student, and they said, hey, we have an art teacher position open, and it's only half time. 
Um, mm. And I said, I'm living right off the beach. It's 78 <laughs> degrees every day of the year. I'm making mad money. And they're like, oh, so you don't want the job. And I said, no, of course I'll take that job, and I will be there as soon as you need me. And the reason for that is because of that quality that was instilled in me, that community is above all of great import. And the opportunity for me to give back to this school, to my community that gave me so much as a youth, and to do that for other students and other kids and other youth. And I had no idea of the journey that that would begin, of, of being there for almost 25 years, starting New Jersey's first middle school gay-straight alliance, and all the other things that I had the great honor and opportunity to experience while I was there. Um, and to further answer your question, how did I intertwine my art and my teaching? Um, I was lucky enough to be an art teacher, so I was lucky mm-hmm. enough to bring my vocation, to bring my profession, to bring my talent into the classroom and have that inspire the kids. So when my work was published, when my work was shown, when I was in a gallery, you know, I would be able to share that and say, this is what you can do. This is, this is how you can succeed. This is how you can reach people. This is how you can inspire people. And my art has always been about inspiring people. My art has, you know, has always been about making a statement, creating a message, bringing love and respect to all peoples. One of the pieces I'm most proud of uh, I did some work for the Obama campaign, mm. and um, out of and we all know out of the thousands and thousands of pieces that were done, because all of us artists were so inspired by the man, um, there was a book published called Design for Obama, which was edited by Stephen Heller from the New York Times and Spike Lee, um, and they chose about a hundred pieces out of the thousands and thousands that were created during the time, and two of my pieces were uh, allowed to be in that book, and it was a wonderful experience. One of the pieces was, um, as the kids say, went viral. It was uh, called Obama Said Knock You Out. I kind of did an amalgam mm. of Obama and Ali, and then a playoff, the LL Cool J yeah. uh, song uh-huh. lyric, right? And mm-hmm. um, what happened was it was this great intersection of the virtual and physical world in that um, – it got tweeted out election night and was one of the most tweeted pieces of the evening. Uh, LL Cool J picked it up, which was a tremendous honor. And then virtually, that was delightful. But physically, the piece was printed out by hundreds and hundreds of folks across the world, and it made it across the country. It was in Japan. It was in Mexico. It was all over, and it was just a wonderful thing. You know, it was a very, um, very humbling experience for me because so many people picked it up and were touched by what I had done by, you know, and it was also kind of a gorilla, wonderful piece of art that, you know, got plastered and put up and stapled and, you know, governor's mansions and Republican enclaves and (laughs) allies and everywhere else. And it was just, it was, you know, one of the experiences that just allows you to see the world as this huge, huge place but also this very, very small place where we can all come together. And although we are separated by ideas, by emotions, by physicality, we can all come together because that's what's most important to all of us is that feeling of being connected. You know what I love about, about 
what you just said. I mean, especially with the whole thing of teaching. And, you know, there, I mean, people don't often recognize the importance of teachers. I mean, you know, we do, but, you know, it sort of gets glossed over. But, you know, I know that many people would probably in this world would go like, man, you left California, the beach, all that money, and, and to come back and teach where you grew up, you know. Um, how many, what was the response of your friends and family? I'm sure that many of them said, of course he did. But have you been able to share what made you do that, that, this passion that you have about coming back to it with other potential teachers or young people who are looking like, where am I going to go and, and I just want to go and make that money. But that importance, that passion about coming back to your community and inspiring being a part of it. Have you been able to share that? Yeah, again, you know, an incredibly fortunate experience in my life is being able to communicate that and having people respond to it. Um, you know, I don't take anything for granted, and I see kids all the time. And I say kids sometimes at this point, <laughs> some of them are now, you know, in their 30s who I've mm-hmm. had, and they come back and they say, oh, you know, I'm an artist now because of your class, or I'm a teacher now because of what you imparted upon me, or, you know, I do social activism now, you know, and I never expected that because in middle school, you don't really have the same impact as you do in high school. You know, kids tend to remember, middle school is kind of the... the um, lack of a better term, the ghetto of the education department, because you have mm-hmm. kids in, in the lower elementary who remember, oh, of course I remember my kindergarten teacher because that was such a delightful experience and I was so young and they wiped my nose, right? And mm-hmm. then in high school, you remember your teachers because you're a person then and you get to, uh, you know, have communications with those teachers as real people. But in middle school, you're kind of in that, you know, that, that, that phase where you're, you're still gestating and finding out who you are and really discovering yourself. And it's very rare that, that you come back to a teacher and say, oh, you, you had an effect. And I never expected that. I, I knew that it was a thankless position. And the truth is, when I started, I fully expected to transfer up to the high school when a position opened up. Mm-hmm. And when that did happen a few years later, I didn't even think about it. I had found my, my niche. I'd found my spot. And maybe it was because I, I uh, am in the same mindset and maturity level of those kids, perhaps, um, some would say. But to me, it was just it was a wonderful time to really grasp onto these kids when they were really finding themselves and be able to have an impact, whether or not they remembered it or not, whether or not you were recognized it for it or not. It was more important to me just to be able to, to do that. Um, you know, and I never expected to do the things I did while I was there when I started I never expected to start the first Gay Straight Alliance in middle school. You know, well, you but know, you know that, I think that's, a, that's the other part that I want to, you know, often people are like, you hear people like, um, like Gay Straight Alliance, and, and, and you talk to people and you talk about like, well, even like in elementary school to talk about it, and people go, oh, kids don't know about that, kids don't. But you were aware, you saw an uncle, your family talked about this uncle who had to, to stay closeted until his father passed, you recognized in your peers as you were coming up who were, you know, bullied, feeling a sense of secrecy and shame. And here when you were in middle school, here you're teaching at a middle school, and you recognized the need to start a gay-straight alliance. What was that? I mean, 
did you have students who you knew who you could identify that maybe were questioning or whatever? And what was the response to the school when you from the school when you said, you know, we need to start a gay straight alliance here? There is so much to unpack there. Uh, I will do my darndest to answer your question. <laughs> um, and again, you know, I don't want to take credit for almost any of this. The truth is, I have been inspired, and I have been. Um, called into this by others almost exclusively. When you talk about my uncle, you know, I, I, that was such a profound moment in my life. I remember it, we, were, we were driving up the New Jersey Turnpike and we were going to my poppy's funeral, my mom's dad, who I want to really clarify was a wonderful man, a kind mm-hmm. and generous and beautiful, loving man. And our son is named after him. But we all have our blind spots. We all have, you know, whether it's due to um, the time that we live, you know, what we're brought up believing. And unfortunately, this was one of his. And my uncle, who I couldn't love and respect anymore, you know, as you said yourself, you know, wasn't able to, to truly identify, wasn't able to be who he was, you know, and... When my folks told me, and I was able to put that together, even, you know, at the age of 11 or 12, it, it, it so affected me, and it, it carried that with me. Um, but again, you know, let, let me just digress for a moment here. Because sure. I've, been telling that, I've been telling that story for years and years and years. It's a story I dine out on. It's a story I tell when I'm given awards that I'm humbled about receiving. It's a story that, that I share, you know, but it's, it's not my story. And I want to make that really clear. This was an epiphany I had this year as I was starting the, the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice and on that journey. I, I've been telling these stories, and there are other stories that, that we'll probably get into later on, that I tell about how woke I am or how aware I am, or what I learned, or how I grew. And that's all wonderful and delightful for me, but they're not my stories. That's mm-hmm. my uncle's story. That's his mm-hmm. experience. And I, I can't speak to that. I can speak to how I felt and what it meant to me. But I, I really, it was wonderful for me to realize that it wasn't my story to tell, that these, these were other people's stories. Um, they don't belong to me. I was a witness for the most part. I may have been of some small service, but I did not experience the shame, the lack of acceptance, the fear, the hopelessness. You know, I certainly did not gather the strength to overcome those hardships. And I think that each of those folks that, that allowed me the great honor of being a part of their stories allowed me a wonderful and indeed life-changing window into their worlds, allowed me to see from my safe vantage point my privileged place in our society. Best I can do is empathize, mm-hmm. and I want to empathize the heck out of it. But that's what we can do. We can see each other and hear each other and support each other and just be with each other. You know, and that's what it allowed me. Um, well, don't so, you think that especially, you know, I mean, because as a straight man, I mean, but by having been there and you've got a family and everything, I mean, often you have people who go like, oh, you know, I don't know anybody gay or I've never seen that. But to be there, like you're saying, like you're not taking their story, but you're saying that you saw it and not 
having lived that experience, that it touched you. It moved you. And by saying that, that maybe and and recognizing your place and sharing that with some someone else might look around, you know what, cousin Eddie, I've been I've had blinders on to what's really going on. And you know, and 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 to be empathetic. You know, maybe that's what by not claiming their stories but saying that as an observer, you help others to be more empathetic. Yes, of course, and that, that's that's my hope, and that that's if I dare say my goal, right? Mm-hmm. But again, we have to realize that they're not our experiences, mm-hmm. um, you know. And the reason I started the Gateway Alliance in my school is not because I wanted to do it or I was so visionary that I saw it. It was because a student came to me. Uh, you know, and this was, this was, and, and it was a long journey. It wasn't, and again, I wasn't as visionary as some might think. A student came to me my, my first year of teaching, my first year of teaching, and I'm all of, you know, 23, 24 years old, and, there, mm-hmm. and he came out to me. I was the first person, the only person that he told for many years, um, and he shared that experience with me, and I don't know why. I don't know if he just felt I was open that he felt I would be accepting, that he felt safe. Whatever it was, whatever wonderful thing that I imparted, I am glad for. And then that allowed me to become that safe space for students for many, many years. And it wasn't until further on down my journey that another student, um, and didn't even come to me honestly, I, I want to give credit to everybody who deserves credit where it's due and Every journey and every moment that we have is influenced and inspired by someone else. That's just mm. the way of the world. And, we, and I, too many times we, we don't recognize that. So a student came to a colleague of mine and said, I, I don't feel I have a place here. I need somewhere. And they decided to start this Gay Straight Alliance. And I just became attached to it because I was like, this is what I should be doing. This is what... Mm my journey has been leading up to and it became such a monumental thing for me that it was everything I looked forward to in school and was there blowback was there resistance of course there was you mentioned it earlier um, before I depressed like seven times Um, (laughs) and you know there's um, there's definitely always going to be resistance and that's that's a sad part of our reality that there's going to be prejudice there's going to be misunderstanding. There's going to be fear. And we always have to recognize that the vast majority of that doesn't stem from hate. And we have mm-hmm. to try to include and accept everybody, even those that are spitting at us, you know, uh, whether it be uh, virtually on the Internet now or physically, unfortunately, sometimes, or metaphorically, however it is. You know, this vitriol that, that we face that's so difficult and so horrible, we also have to remember that, that the vast majority of times it comes from a place of fear, and we have to assuage that fear. We have to make those people feel as comfortable as we want other, our, our allies to, to feel. The same safety and respect we show and we want our allies and our kids and our families and our communities to feel. We have to show that to our, for lack of a better term, enemies and the people that don't agree with us. 
mm-hmm. you know, and, and um, Michelle Obama said, you know, when they go low, we go high. And, you know, and that was such a wonderfully beautiful thing to say. And it's been, and I was going to say, you know what, it's, I was going to say it's been overused, but there's no way to overuse that. That mm-hmm. is something that we all need to take a breath. And sometimes it's incredibly difficult. But, but you have to remember that nobody's looking to do anybody else harm. They're, they're afraid. They're concerned. They're fearful of losing their place, of their families losing their place, of their mm-hmm. community losing their place. So we have to show them that we can all live together. And these kids need to feel the same thing. So that's why I always bring it back to. You know, what are you afraid of? And if you're afraid of that, can you imagine what this 12-year-old kid feels like? And one of, the, one of the biggest criticisms and one of the ways that people now couch their homophobia, that they hide it, is by saying, oh, these kids are too young. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't the time for sexuality. You know, and first and foremost, being gay, being lesbian, being bisexual, being transgender you know, being intersex, being asexual, however kids may identify, whatever, whoever they are, that's their identity. That's who they are. That's who they are. And it has nothing to do with sex. Mm-hmm. That's, who, that's, that's their truth. You know, so one of the things that we, we had to combat when we were starting a GSA in a middle school was that it wasn't about them being sexual. It wasn't about their sex. It was about they themselves as people, as human beings. And aren't we supposed to love and respect and accept each other? Doesn't every religion tell us that? Doesn't everything in our, the fiber of our being tell us to do that? So accept that. Well, you know, we have seem to have... I mean, we have such a phobia about sex. You know what I mean? Like, there's so many schools that don't even want to teach sex education. And like you said, this is about who they are. And it's not about sex, which people, which is also like that horrible blanket that people want to put over the LGBTQ community and base everything about us, about what we do in the bedroom. Okay. And that's not it. And to have these kids, especially at that age, when you're going through so much, have some place where not only you feel safe, but you feel loved. How? Right. I mean, that is just like, that, that's it, isn't it? You know how they say it takes a village? Well, it takes a village. It takes love to raise a child, you know. And sometimes, you know, I've talked to people where maybe at that point in time, the direction that they take can go either way. But if you feel love, you can be strong enough to be yourself and maybe – help your families and that identify what their fears are and come together more as a community. And I know I see pictures of you. I mean, that has to be the best thing when you go in there and you have these kids and you're in the middle of all these, with one picture, I just love it. You're in the middle of all these kids who are just loving on each other and you. That has to be, you know, there's not enough money in the world to take the place of that. You're going to, you're going to make, um, you're going to make me cry a little bit. Yeah, and that, that's, that's, that's selfish of me because I do get that response, and that is such an incredible honor for me. And that, that picture you, you speak of 
is um, was at the Asbury Park Pride Parade, and that was with um, all those kids were kids I met that very day from a TSA mm. in New Jersey. Uh, you know, another middle school that that got to exist because we started ours. And what's amazing about doing those kind of events where I get to see kids at a pride parade or at some gathering where they feel that acceptance, that respect, and what you said, that all-important love, and they, they get to look around. And some of them, for the very first time, get to feel that, get to see, oh, there are other people like me. There are other people that accept me. There are other people that respect me. And yes, indeed, there are other people that love me. And when I get to see that, that makes all of it worthwhile. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, Robert, we're going to take our first break here. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the center. So we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back to Collections by Michelle Brown. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Robert Seda Schreiber, and he is the chief activist at the Bayard Rustin Center for Social Justice. Okay, I liked that you put in there, you went to Mr. Rustin's partner and got his consent. How important was that to you? I mean, because many people, they want to claim a name, you know, they want to claim a name, but they never go back to whomever was involved and say, you know, we want to do this and use your name. Do you, you know, this is what we're trying to do. Is it okay with you? How important was that to you to go to Mr. Nagel? Okay, so here you go. So here's me again, um, giving credit where credit is due, my lovely bride. Again, I uh, mentioned before, public defender, lawyer, mm-hmm. make sure I always stay in the straight and narrow, make sure I'm always on the righteous path. And she said, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it the right way. And you're going to contact his partner. You're going to, you're going to, you can't just use the name. You have to get permission to use the name. And, of course, as she is very often, I don't want to say always, but very often, <laughs> exactly correct. And I was a little scared because that meant, what if he says no? What if he doesn't allow us? And then, you know, where do I go from there? And Byron Rustin has always been such a hero of mine because he, he, you know, he shows, he is the the exemplar of what our center wants to do. You know, I know you know this, and I know a lot Mm -hmm. of folks know this in our community, but too many folks don't know this. 
you know, Bayard Rustin planned the march. Mm-hmm. Bayard Rustin inspired the Freedom Riders. You know, Bayard Rustin was behind so much. He, he, you know, this is amazing to me. I just learned this a few weeks ago. He brought the peace symbol to America. Mm. Mm-hmm. He was at a, a rally in England where they first created the peace symbol, which is part of a nuclear disarmament uh, rally, and he brought that back here. He was the one that convinced Martin Luther King to use nonviolence as, mm-hmm. a, a, as the very foundation of the movement. Martin Luther King had guns in the house, and, you know, and, and some would say rightfully so. His family was threatened with firebombing and, and great violence, and he felt he needed to protect his family, as many of us would. But Byron went to him and said, you know, we can't do this. We've got to rise above this. And I know it's scary, but we've got to be better. Mm-hmm. And they spent an entire night in conversation, soul-searching, debating, discussing. And by the morning, Dr. King removed all the guns from the house. Byron did all these things but he was lost to history. His name was forgotten. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that was because he was gay, because of who he loved, because of who he was, and because he was open about it in a time when it was very much not the way to be. And unfortunately for him, he said, the movement's more important. And exactly. when Tom Thurmond and their enemies would use him against the movement, he would fade into the background and he would say, I'll do the work and you go do what you need to do. But unfortunately, by him fading, he just faded and faded and faded. And there was no acceptance from the community and he became a non-entity. And thankfully, President Obama posthumously gave him the Medal of Freedom or Honor and Walter Nagel, his partner, was there to accept it. And I had the incredible honor of speaking with Walter Nagel and getting his permission to use the name. And he is very reluctant because even now, when you bring Bayard Rust into a discussion, you know, and bring him to the forefront of the community, there is tremendous vitriol. People still will say horrible things about him. You know, and there were arrests in his past because of the time you could be arrested mm-hmm. just for being gay. And, that, you know, what a shame, what a, a travesty, what a tragedy. This man, Walter, Walter Nagel and Bayard Rustin were not obviously allowed to be married. You know what they had to do to, to, to um, make their relationship legal and to make sure that Walter Nagel would be taken care of and they would be able to share their lives, mm-hmm. Bayard mm-hmm. Rustin had to adopt. I can't imagine what that must have felt like, and I can't imagine it. You know, there's no way to imagine that experience. Um, so when Walter Nagel gave us permission to use the name, that was one of our first major steps to know that we were going to make a difference. And that's what it's about for us, that inclusivity that bring us all together, making sure that nobody will be left behind again. No name will be forgotten again. In any community, you know, in any capacity, large or small, whether it, you know, it's, it's a community of 
100,000 people or whether it's in a classroom. The Bard Russell Center for Social Justice is committed. The very foundation of what we are is to make sure that no name, no person, no entity is ever forgotten again. And, you know, I think that it, it, you know, it, it's a two, double-edged sword because, like, you're not only saying that, that no one is forgotten, but also, and you said it a couple of times, how it's not about you, how it's about, like, how to, to, to save these kids' lives and do it. And you recognize everybody who's involved in doing it. But at the same point, you know, you're going to say, hey, it's not all about me. And that's what he did. It was like the movement was so important, it wasn't about him. But we can never forget that there wouldn't have been a movement without him. And I think that that's, that's so important that you're encouraging everyone to step up. But well, I'm I mean, that, saying, you know, we're not going to erase it from history. Right. And that's the whole thing, right? I mean, it is, um, it is social justice, right? Mm-hmm. And the first part is social, which means we, we all got to be together. You know, it doesn't work unless it's social. It doesn't work unless we're recognizing each other. And here's the thing, that we don't all the time. We don't recognize that when one group moves forward, we all move forward. And it's incredibly important that we start, especially in these times. You know, and, I, I, you know, and people are so um, dis, um, disenchanted and are so hopeless, right? We're feeling the fear, and, and we see it every day, and every day something else happens that we say, I cannot believe this happened. And yeah. the day before, we said the same thing. So it's just piling on, piling on. And how do you not feel hopeless? How do you not feel like this is an incredibly horrific moment in our history, which it is? But I also feel like, there's a tremendous opportunity. I feel there's always opportunity. There's always hope in the darkest of times, especially, because it allows us to come together. I'll tell you, you mentioned um, earlier that I won the Champion of Equality Award for the state of New Jersey, and that was a tremendous honor. And it was for my starting the GSA in my school and for my efforts for the LGBTQI community. And um, it was given, though, at the Human and Civil Rights Dinner. And the Human and Civil Rights Dinner was historically a dinner for um, people of color, for that community, for people who were celebrating their achievements and their honors. And that's wonderful. And it was a two-hour dinner. When I showed up, and, you know, and I'm always going to speak frankly, so this is a story that, that I think needs to be told. When I showed up, there was a lot of people who were not so comfortable with me being there. They were not so thrilled with me accepting this award for this community in the midst of what was supposed to be a celebration of another community. And that mm-hmm. makes sense because when you only have two hours and you have to give 15 minutes away, that's a huge chunk of time. And you have to remember, you have to say, gosh, I know that that is something that um, it was sad for me and I was taken aback, but I quickly got it. I understood. Uh, Because if you have an hour in a hotel ballroom for your dinner, and suddenly you're being asked to give up 10 minutes or 15 minutes of that time for another concern, another issue, another group, whom you think may even be outside your purview, that is something that's not easily digested along with the overdone chicken and lack of a vegetarian (laughs) option, right? (laughs) Yes. And here was a very potent example of one community having to cede time and space so another could achieve something of their own. 
Inclusion is hard to swallow, especially when it comes at the price of a concrete loss of something of your own. But we can persevere. We can find connections. And I truly believe that. Case in point, when I started my speech upon acceptance of that award, there was tinkling of silverware and even more conversation and murmuring. So I talked directly to my audience. And luckily, my speech was about the import of family and acceptance mm-hmm. for the community I was representing, and indeed for all communities that are disenfranchised, that are disrespected. And we found common ground, and there was a resonance, and it created a moment wherein we could all recognize each other. It was crystal. And mm-hmm. after my speech, I was inundated with folks who wanted to share a story about their gay cousin, their lesbian aunts, or on the DL, their own identification. And even more inspiring were the few people who wanted to start their own GSAs in their own communities because of that initially fraught but ultimately inspiring interaction. Now, I like that you are, you know, in most organizations, you know, you've got your executive director or your CEO or whatever. You're the chief activist. What made you claim that title? And, and what's the importance of that title? I think it's great. But how did that come about? What was the discussion around that? Well, you know, I, I, I will uh, admit fully to, self, uh, to some self-aggrandizing there. Um, but I felt it was important at the outset to communicate what I intended to do. I intended um, to raise some rabble. I intended to not make it easy or safe that our center is always going to speak out loudly and clearly whenever we say something wrong. Um, And we've lost some gigs because we've had people who come and check us out, like, oh, you know, you're too radical. You know, we can't be involved with this on this level or that level. But if something is wrong, we are going to speak out about it. And we're going to do so respectfully. We're going to do so with great, love and respect, and we're going to do so in a voice that can be heard. So we're not shouting over people. We're not going to be able to be dismissed because we're being rude, but we are going to make sure they're being heard because there are too many folks who are not being heard and seen. So as chief activist, I I get out in the forefront and I put myself out there. And again, as we talked about earlier, I come from a place of privilege. You know, I, it's safer for me. And the stories I tell, again, are not my own, but I will tell them so people can hear them. And then what I'll do is I will introduce the people who can really tell those stories, the mm-hmm. people who are really affected, the people who have lived those stories. You know, I just met with a wonderful pastor um, at a church that is trying to be more affirming and more accepting And she and I were talking, and she said that her congregants, they want to be accepting. They want to be there for everybody. They want to be more inclusive, but they don't know, they don't have the knowledge to do it because they haven't heard from the people. And at first, I was going to come in and talk to those folks. And then I realized, no, step back. You can't do that because you don't speak from experience. So what we planned instead was to have someone come in from Beyond Diversity, which is a wonderful group that works here 
in New Jersey. We're going to have someone come in from the Latin American Legal Defense Fund, which is a wonderful group that works close to us as well. We're going to have someone come in from GLSEN. We're going to have someone come in who can speak to those authentic experiences, not secondhand, not thirdhand, not, oh, I saw this, this was awful, because I can say that, but I don't feel it, and I haven't, I haven't lived it. And if you're going to learn, you have to learn from the person who has taken that journey, who has walked those steps. Do you ever feel like, and, and I, I think it's commendable that you do that, but, but do you often feel like when sometimes when they reach out to you, that you're like the safe choice, but then you act as a gatekeeper, like they reach out to you and you open the door and you bring in the real voices. Do you ever feel, though, um, do you get it from both sides? Like, do you get it from members of the LGBTQ community? Like, hey, how come they didn't come right to us? You know, why do they have to go to the middleman? And do you then also, on the other side, once you've opened the door, even before them, do you have to explain to people, you know, that I, that you are the gateway and that the people that they needed to be talking to are over there? And how do we bridge that? You know, how do we bridge that to where – you know, I'm not trying to put you out of out of work. You know, because I think that you know, uh, I think that there's always a role of, for what you're doing to to keep things going to, and to make these opportunities. But how do we start to to bridge that to where it's only natural that if you want to talk about this, that you think about you know reaching out to members of the LGBT community if you don't already have them on on your panel, in your organization, on your board? That, that's, a, that's a wonderfully incisive and uh, insightful question, and I thank you for asking it because it is definitely, there, there is a, a, a fraught um, part of what I do, right, that, that I am this, again, and, and it's come up a few times in our conversation, and rightfully so, that I am a person of privilege. Mm-hmm. And... You know, and I've learned, especially in this past year, in setting up the center and doing the work that I'm doing now, I've learned that, that oftentimes I have to step back and let the authentic folks and voices be heard. Um, and you said, I don't want to put myself out of work. But, you know, maybe that's the goal. You know, mm. I used to say to my kids, a, a wonderful memory you just gave me, um, I used to say to my kids at the Gay Straight Alliance at the GSA in school, I said, our mission actually is to put ourselves out of business. Our mission is to not have to exist anymore. Our mission is to create a society and a community and a school that doesn't need a Gay Straight Alliance, that the entire school is indeed the Gay Straight Alliance, becomes an opening and welcoming and fear-free uh, society right, on, on the smaller scale in the classroom, in the hallway, in the school, in the community, and the world if we're in a grandiose, right? So, yes, do I, do I hope and um, is my goal maybe to put myself out of work? It sounds like I think you hit upon something. It sounds <laughs> like, you know, maybe I can do this and after however long it takes not have to be that middleman and not have to be the person who speaks for someone else, but let that person step up and speak for themselves as they, as they always should and, and have always had the opportunity to. But in the meantime, 
until we reach that lofty goal, that ideal, that wonderful dream, I'm going to go out every day and do every single thing I can to make that a reality. So let's mm-hmm. do that, Michelle. Let's you and I work together to put me out of work. All right. Yeah, all right. And, and you know what? And, and there will be more work. You know, we'll find other things for you to do. But this part, we'll, we'll be able to put a, put a lid on and keep doing it. Now, you had over 800 people show up for the Families Belong Together rally. What was that about? And how did you, I mean, I'm, I mean, I can imagine, you know, you never know how many people are going to show up at a, at a rally. But you had over 800 people. How did you, what was the planning behind it? What were your, was your goal with it? And how did it feel? Gosh, um, again, an, another, I have to start with uh, someone brought to me. Um, mm-hmm. A wonderful, inspirational friend of mine, David Saylor, who's one of our board members of the BRCSJ, uh, an inspiration to me every day. Um, he works tirelessly for um, the unions and for people who uh, need representation and um, does tremendously great work. He works with his own group called the Clarion River Group. I'm going to give him a plug because they deserve it and they do incredible things. Um, And he brought to me, when um, our administration showed such horrific um, bad judgment and and fear, right, again, fear, and and kept these families apart, he said, Mm. is this something we should be involved with? And I said, yes, this is exactly what we should be involved with. Because again, we want to include everybody who's not Mm -hmm. being represented, who's not being kept safe. So we started talking about what we should do, how we should do it. And we, you know, as you do, you know, with a hive mind, you started to say, okay, what are some plans? And we were talking about going to Elizabeth here in New Jersey and to the ICE detention center and bringing stuffed monkeys, you know, and putting Mm -hmm. them at the gate and making a symbolic gesture, you know, and getting moms and dads and families with strollers and and marching. Um, And then it just gestated and became bigger and greater and move on became involved and it went from us and this is the truth we were talking on a um the week before not 10 days before so we're saying oh maybe we'll have like 30 or 40 people come out and wouldn't that be fantastic and that would be inspiring and that would be a nice thing to represent folks and to to make people feel safe and to create a message and wouldn't be so bad for the center either to get our voice heard as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then my family, of all things, were going on vacation. And with our son going to college this fall, it was the kind of thing where I, I, I couldn't miss it. It wasn't something that I, I felt would be appropriate to my wife, to my son, to myself, to miss out on, on this very important family experience. So we went, and I was on uh, the boardwalk in Wildwood. Um, much of the rally was planned on my bike, going back and forth. <laughs> you know, I was reaching out um, to the Reverend Carroll of the Unitarian Church, and I was reaching out to a union member of the AFP, and I was reaching out to um, the Latin American Legal Defense Fund and finding people who would speak and who would be able to inspire the group, again, better than I could because they were speaking mm-hmm. from their, their personal experiences, from their communities. And we were signing people up, and it went from 30 to 40 to 300 to 400. 
And then I spoke to David, and David said, well, how many people do you expect to show up? And I said, well, we have 600 signed up. And he said, wow. yeah, so just so you know, from my experience, that will be about 100 people who show up. And <laughs> the day of the event, there we were with over 800 people in this plaza in Princeton uh, and wonderful support from the Coalition for Peace Action and uh, the Reverend Robert Moore, who's another one of our board members, and Nikki Van Aller, who's one of their wonderful um, workers there, their support in giving us a sound system and, and groups coming together. You know, and all those things that allowed us this event to become so incredibly inspiring and successful for so many people. And so many connections were made that day for so many folks. Um, so that's the kind of thing, you know, and we have a screening coming up on the 14th of September. And on the 14th of September, we're showing uh, Voices Beyond the Wall, which is a wonderful, inspiring film, a documentary about an orphanage in Honduras, what's called the murder capital of the world. And these girls are saved and brought this orphanage and, and taught art and poetry and allow their, their, their bodies to be saved, their souls to be saved, and allow them to have a voice. Well, before we go into that, let's take a quick break because I want to talk a little bit more about that. So um, we'll be right back. We're talking with Robert Seda Schreiber about, from the Bayard Reston Center for Social Justice, and we will be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back with our guest, Robert Seda Schreiber. You know, I think it's so important, that, and before I want you to tell more about the documentary, but you know, often, you know, that members of LGBTQ community and our allies show up at that because we hear people talking about the Me Too movement. Well, the Me Too is us too. Okay, when you talk about immigration, we know, and asylum, we know that many people who are members of the LGBTQ community come here seeking the same freedoms and asylums, and where this country, the, the administration, is turning their back on that. Like the same thing, families are families. Sometimes these families might be coming because they're trying to escape, you know, persecution because of uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. So I think it was so great that you had this families belong together, and you were all there taking a role to it. And then also that you're bringing this documentary to the community. So now, will you tell us, uh, I, I mean, could you like reintroduce the, the, the documentary and tell us more about it again? Sure, of course. Oh, I apologize. Okay. I, I just okay. so awfully. I just, my no, thought line is not <laughs> linear at all. 
So again, <laughs> you know, so the rally was brought to me by a, a board member and by a trusted friend. And the rally then brought forth this other connection from a BRCSJ member who said, hey, I, I volunteered at this orphanage and this documentary is so important. And we started talking and she said, I would love to screen this and I think it would be really important and I think that the community would love it and I'd love the Bayard Weston Center for Social Justice to sponsor this. Mm-hmm. And um, she said, would you be willing to do that? I said, would we be willing? We'd be honored, be thrilled. This is, this is right in our wheelhouse. You know, it's inclusivity of bringing all the voices together. And we started talking. I said, but let's not just show the film. Let's bring the filmmaker in. So mm-hmm. not only are we screening this film for the community, but the director, Brad Coley, is coming in from San Francisco to speak. Wow. And, you know, so it's becoming this, again, <laughs> exponential event. That it's not just about, hey, we're going to watch a movie and learn something, but we're going to talk to the man who put it together, and we're going to talk to this member of the BRCSJ who actually spent a great deal of time in the orphanage and her firsthand experience again, which is so important. And that's the kind of thing that we just want to – we are so open to doing these things. Two weeks later – we're sponsoring a drag queen story hour. And you would think you can't get more disparate than this super serious documentary about orphans in Honduras being saved metaphorically and, you know, um, physically. But then two weeks later, having a drag queen come in and share a story with kids. And to me, they are exactly the same thing. To me, mm-hmm. they promote inclusivity. They allow us to see others as not the other, but each other. And keeping with your namesake of organization, you know, civil rights, social movements, all of these things. That he wasn't like, you know, just focused on, okay, I'm just only focused on this one thing. He wasn't. So if you want to live up to the name, that's what you're supposed to do. Yep, I mean, he, he was, uh, you know, I dare say, um, the father of intersectionality, right? He, mm-hmm. you know, before that was a term, before we were, like, even understanding what that would mean, put those syllables together, he was doing that. You know, and again, you, you can't forget that Bayard Rustin was, was so out and just said, no, I, you know, he could have stayed in the movement and been at the forefront and, and been right next to Dr. King marching if he just would have been a little more quiet. If he just mm-hmm. would have, again, um, allowed his identity to take a back seat. But he said, no, this is who I am. And I'm never going to be nothing but proud of who I am. I'm never going to let it be secondary. And obviously that affected him in a very de- detrimental way, but allowed him to live his life truly. You know, and now one of the fortunate things about where we are is we can recognize each other and we can allow each other to be who we are, when we are, you know, and not be afraid and not be ashamed. And to me, it's, it's so incredibly, you know, I've used, I, I think that I, I've used my quota of using the word inspiring during this conversation. <laughs> but I mean, that, that's, that's my, that, those are my days. Those are mm-hmm. my days every day. I, I swear to you, every day I'm inspired by someone else or something else. And I know that so many of us 
every day our hearts are broken and we watch the news or we hear what's been said. I mean, yes, we are at a moment in our history where we have the people in power not only allowing hate to, to gestate and to grow, but actually encouraging it, you know, on a, a daily basis. But I tell you, my friend, that I each and every day, no doubt, no dignity, each and every day I hear from someone or I meet with someone or I have an experience that lets me see all the good that we are, all the hope that we can encompass, all the ways that we can move forward together. And it happens in incredibly disparate places. I mean, in one day I can be in a school boardroom and planning a professional development for their teachers about transgender inclusion policies and how we can best represent and protect those kids. And then an hour later, I'm in Christ Congregation Church talking to the pastor about how she wants to bring to her congregation all these disparate voices and have her people here so they can learn from experiences. And then I, I sometimes have the wonderful personal experience of having lunch with my mom or dad who mm. bring it home and, and remind me of where I come from and what they did for me and ground me. So I never, mm-hmm. you know, I never forget that I am just one small person, one mechanism in a much larger context of what we can um, fabricate and create for each other. You know, I, I have to give a shout-out to your wife. I mean, you have mentioned her. You give credit where credit do, is due in general. But you have mentioned how she has, like, nudged you in the right way, um, supported you, uh, been like that. How did she feel when you said, okay, this is the next move, you know, this center, this is important work? And clearly she's been behind you all along. But your pathways, how does that intersect in social justice and her role? I mean, which is, or some people would say that isn't, but, you know, it gives her a certain lens on what's happening in society and the work that you do. Well, let me, I, 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 um, I don't mean to be rude. This is your show, so I don't mean to correct you. But okay. you said she's behind me. She's never well, behind me. Okay. She's I, always oh. in front of me. She's always so in front of me. <laughs> so I have to make sure that I clarify that in a big, big way. Um, okay. Yeah, well, but she's, Cindy she's pulling has, you along, not pushing you. She's like, come on here. Okay, great. I love that. She, she has always been my inspiration. And she, mm-hmm. was, she was one of the first moments in my life where I was like, oh, man, I'm so woke. I'm so down with it. I, you know, I, <laughs> I'm fighting. I'm, uh, you know, I'm in the struggle. You know, my boots are on the ground. Uh, and then she came along and she knocked me over in so many ways. Wow. And, and in the social justice arena, I mean, in, in, I, and I want to say this, in love with this woman, from Mm -hmm. the very first moment that I laid eyes on her across in the street. And um, that love has never faltered. And it's only matched by the respect I have for her. Um, Mm. You know, she she grew up in Trenton. She grew up in the thick of it. She grew up in a place that I I could never imagine, that I could never understand. And the fact that that, that she's who she is and so strong, you know, she supported her family. 
she had numerous jobs all at one time and put herself through school and then law mm-hmm. school and you know then said i want to be a public defender because i want to go back and help my people so now she's back in trenton you know and, and in that journey you know and and never faltered you know she has worked for the public defender as a criminal defense attorney and now she's in this incredibly important position as a mental health uh, attorney where she is again defending this such misunderstood and such misrepresented and such underrecognized part of our population mm-hmm. um, and and you know when I say she inspires me each and every day that's not something I say lightly because you know it's tough for me to give credit to someone else I, I like credit um, <laughs> but she she you know when people say to me oh my gosh I cannot believe the things you do and I say you should see my wife you should see what she does every day it everything I do pales in comparison to what she puts herself out there for and and the people she represents and the incredibly um, numerous lives that she has affected and saved um, exponentially mm-hmm. so when I started this journey and when I you know this is this was the next phase for me as you said um, when I realized you know when I wanted to go to a greater platform to serve and defend our community this is the amazing thing she didn't flinch she didn't hesitate mm-hmm. she's been right behind me she's every day she says what if you do this what if you do that sometimes it's very annoying but most of the time <laughs> it's really fantastic and inspiring mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, Gosh, you did it again. I used the word inspiring. Um, but there's no way this happens without her. There's no way that I can do what I do without her. So every person that I help, every person that I might save, every person or community that I might affect is only because she is there with me and she allows me that opportunity. And that's not only you know, um, emotional support, it's not only psychological support, it's not only familial support, but it, I want to be clear about this, it's financial. Mm-hmm. We, we, have, we have put so much of ourselves, but also, honestly, our finances into this. I, I am not getting paid as of yet because I feel that it's more important that I put whatever we get into the programs we want to do and whatever comes later will be good and obviously my son's starting college so that's something that that's foremost in my mind but I need to do the work and Mm -hmm. I I haven't done the fundraising like I should um, and that's been probably my one blind spot but it's so difficult for me when I sit down and I have five or six emails from people or phone calls I need to return that have this issue that needs to be resolved or this help that they need or this student who's being bullied or this school that needs some education or this group that needs me to come and speak or find someone to speak for them that how can I then take time out to try to get a couple of dollars here and there mm-hmm. um, Well, you know I want to thank you t- you know because I I could hear, you know, you kept bringing her up, and I said, this sounds like an amazing woman. And, you know, 
and I don't have her on the show, but I mean, I could just sense that she was an incredible person. And I want to thank you for sharing that bit about her, you know, and I mean, I might have to do a show with her, but I mean, that, that, that to have someone who, who not only like supports you and pulls you along, gives you that boost when you need it, and often the people forget, you know, that activism is hard work. They think, oh, you just go out there and want to do good, but it's hard work. And to have that inspiration, and I'm using it now, that inspiration in your life, <laughs> you know, we all have to thank her for helping this organization come to fruition and do the things that it, it's doing. But like you said, right now you're about doing the work and there's not that part as far as the ugly part, the fundraising. So how – I know you go out and, um, and you do speaking and you do all that. How is the organization sustained and how can people support the organization? Well, on the ground level, individuals can um, honestly, since since you asked, they can go to our website, rustincenter.org, R-U-S-T-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.org, and there's a donation platform there. Um, we go out and we speak, and we, we have things that we can bring to you, to your business, to your school, to your community, to your meeting, to your group, whatever it may be. And we do, um, you know, we, we charge a small fee for businesses and whoever can afford it. But, of course, and this is one of the other problems, so now I'm, I'm shooting myself in the foot, we do donation kind, too. So there's an organization mm-hmm. that needs us. We'll always do the work. Um, so, of course, people can go to our website and donate uh, if they want to host an event. You know, one of, the, one of the most wonderful things that I experienced in this journey was I saw Jim Keady, who was running for – office here in New Jersey running against Chris Smith and we went out and heard him and we're not even in that district so I'm not because I'm not allowed to um, lobby for any candidate but we went out to hear him and he just gave a living room talk you know and and candidates do this these living room talks where they go and they speak to people and they share their ideas and their journey and, you know, and people then can donate to the campaign. That's one of the things that we've been toying with, you know, having people host us at their houses. You know, mm-hmm. as I said, we're having this screening on the 14th of September um, for the documentary. And, again, we could have had that as a fundraiser for only the center, and I, I can't do that. So we're, we're, half the money is going to uh, races, the um, R-I-A-C-E-S, the group in Texas who are defending immigrant families and doing such incredible mm-hmm. work down there. So we're splitting all the proceeds from that event with them. Um, but we are going to work toward what we need to work toward, and hopefully people will find the energy and the kindness to support us as we do it. And um, we, are, we are, are thrilled at the idea, you know, there have been some people who have spoken to us about finding corporate sponsors who, you know, businesses who might want to support our good works and say, listen, don't waste your time having to scrounge for the funds. We will, we will, you know, take a brunt of that for you. You know, so we're open. If anybody wants to contact me personally, um, you can find me at rustincenter at gmail.com. If you don't mind me giving my email out. No, 
Um, it's R-U-S-T-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R, same as our website, at gmail.com, or go to the website and you can find me there too, obviously. Uh, we're, looking, we're looking at people who can help us with that part of the equation. That's the mm-hmm. one part that I've been negligent about, and, it, it, and it's not fair because it's definitely it's not selfish for me to pursue funding because without funding we can't exist. And I know we're getting mm-hmm. to that point where we're on the precipice of that being not just um, a desire but a necessity, uh, a thing that we need to move forward. But I'm not going I, – I can't take that time because, mm-hmm. as I said before, if there are these pressing issues, if these people or this group, this community that needs me or us, because it's an us, there. I mean, you know, again, it's not all about me. We have an incredible board of directors. We have incredible members. In fact, as I get off the phone with you today, I'm going out to a meeting with um, some of our wonderful members who are taking so much of the work and doing so much uh, of the necessary things that need to be done. You know, so it's, this is not a one-man operation in any way, shape, or form. You know, I may be the chief activist, but we have a tremendous group behind us, and I have people every day who bring to me ideas and thoughts and do the work and make the effort to make this a reality. It, it's a collective, mm-hmm. and that's important to be recognized and, and, and heard, um, and I want everyone to know that, that when you go to the website, you'll see our board of directors, and you'll see our community liaisons. You know, we have uh, this great gentleman, Don Du, who's out in the Midwest, who came to me and said, I represent um, differently abled LGBTQIA folks, mm-hmm. and I, I'd like to be involved. And I was like, I want you to be involved, because I have no idea of that, the needs of that community. So I need you to tell me. So he came on as one of our community liaisons. You know, we have Steph Salvador, who's a teacher in Perth Amboy, who we helped start at GSA there, and out of that relationship, out of that work, became one of our community liaisons. And it, what's amazing is Steph's not on board now as um, a member of the LGBTI community. She's not representing that community. She's representing, she has this wonderful drive for food education, about mm. community gardening, about bringing kids especially in urban areas, teaching them how to garden, how to be in the soil, how to get dirty, but also how to eat better and how to appreciate and love food. You know, and, and because we all know that diet is so important to our, our, um, how we grow as people. And she has brought that to us, and that's something I never imagined when we started the center, that we would be involved in food education, in gardening, in mm-hmm. urban areas. And now I am so incredibly thrilled that we get to be involved in that aspect because it's something I never would have imagined. It's something I never would have thought of myself, brought to me by one of our members. And now it's an incredibly important arm of the center. That's, that's really amazing. I, well, well, Robert, I'm going to tell you, um, I wish you the best of luck. I'm going to see how I can I can assist you and support you above and beyond um, airing this interview. Um, I think that the things that, I mean, I hope that people will think about supporting the center with a, a donation. 
maybe there's someone out there who would want to volunteer who does fundraising and just take on that piece to do that because it's important work that, that the center is doing. I want to thank you for sharing your story and thank you for, I'm going to tell you, for the tribute to your wife. I mean, she is a phenomenal woman, and it seems like she's happy to just doing, she in her own way is serving the community, and that's her focus too. Uh, thank you for that tribute to her. Um, I look forward to hearing more about what your activities. Please keep me in the loop. And when was the date again? September 14th, and where is the documentary going to be shown? It's at the um – Unitarian Universalist Church uh, here in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, and there's a, on the website, there's, there's a page for it, just go to the Voices screening page, and you can get all the information there. Tickets are only $20, and that covers the reception with the director, the film itself, and the Unitarian Church is supplying some refreshments, so it's going to be a delightful evening. Um, it's going to be a very important screening of a, a wonderful film, and you'll get to meet the director, who's this great guy. And it's going to be a great night, and I look forward to everyone coming out and, and doing that. Um, and I want to I want to thank you, um, the support that you've shown today, and the kindness you've shown. Honestly, these are the kind of connections that make me believe this could be a reality. This dream of being great service, and uh, it means the world to me and the folks that I represent, the folks that I protect, and the folks that that I love. Well, I should be out your direction probably in a couple of months. I'm going to give you a call, and hopefully we can get together and at least have a cup of tea or something and laugh and talk. How's that? I'm, I'm sorry. How about you stay at my house? That would make me happy. Wow. Well, that sounds great. Okay, well, I will let you know when, I've got, when I'm get closer to finalizing the plans, and we'll do that. We would love that. Our, our son, as I said, is going to college. You can have his bedroom. Don't tell him. I'm sure he'd be kind of upset that I'm offering it. But then you, I'm, and I'm sure, that, that, but I'm setting myself up here because I'm sure that you and my wife will spend the whole night talking and I'll be left behind. But that will be delightful to listen to. You'll be inspired. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, ma'am. You caught okay, me. Well. Thank you so much. It, mean, it means so much. Thank you. Have a great, great day yourself. Okay, Robert. Bye-bye. Much love and respect. I want to thank today's guest, Chief Activist of the Bayard Reston Center for Social Justice, Robert Seda Schreiber. On September 14th, the Center will co-host a screening of Brad Coley's award-winning documentary, Voices Beyond the Wall. There will be a reception and discussion at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation in Princeton, New Jersey. Then, on November 17th, the Reston Center will co-sponsor with GLSEN, Central New Jersey, the 2018 GSA Forum in Middleton, New Jersey. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Be sure and like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.